Well, hello. I have to say it's quite astonishing the things that are happening in the world right now. I've never known a time quite like this. Many of us who've lived for <clears throat> some time have never known a time like this. And when I prepared this talk for today, I started thinking about it maybe a month or six weeks ago. And the prospect of self-isolating wasn't even on the cards. And to be honest, I was already aware that there was some fear kicking around. And I felt very strongly that I was going to talk about it. I wasn't originally going to talk about the coronavirus, but then I thought that might be a bit silly because everyone's kind of thinking and talking about it at the moment and with good reason. But it's about redressing the balance of the discussion. So let's start with Psalm 23, which everyone knows and loves. And it's always good to dwell on God's word at this time anyway. And I'll unpack it a bit because it's not all that I'm talking about, but it's a good start. It's from the Passion Translation, of course. And it might be slightly unusual for your ears, but I think that's a good thing because sometimes we get a bit jaded on us old passage and it gives us a fresh outlook. So the title is David's Poetic Praise to God. The Lord is my best friend and my shepherd. I always have more than enough. He offers me a resting place in his luxurious love. His tracks take me to an oasis of peace, the quiet brook of bliss. And that's where he restores and revives my life. He opens before me pathways to God's pleasure and leads me along his footsteps of righteousness so that I can bring honour to his name. Lord, even when your path takes me through the valley of deepest darkness, fear will never conquer me, for you already have. <laughs> you remain close to me and lead me through it all the way. Your authority is my strength and my peace. The comfort of your love takes away my fear. I'll never be lonely, for you are near. You become my delicious feast, even when my enemies dare to fight. You anoint me with the fragrance of your Holy Spirit. You give me all I can drink of you until my heart overflows. So, why would I fear the future? For your goodness and love pursue me all the days of my life. Then afterward, when my life is through, I'll return to your glorious presence to be forever with you. So this is a really special psalm. And as always with the Passion Translation, it has a lot of footnotes, and it says in the footnotes, people believe that Psalm 23 was written by David when he was a young shepherd serving his father, Jesse. Now, can you imagine being 16 or 17 years old and coming up with this incredible imagery for God's love, wrapping us in and tightly holding us in the midst of good times, but also in the midst of difficult times? And I just love that line. You become my delicious feast, even when my enemies dare to fight me. 
you anoint me with a fragrance of your Holy Spirit. So it's really vivid stuff. And the imagery and metaphors that he uses kind of transcends everything that you expect of a young man sitting uh, in a shepherd's hut, looking after a bunch of sheep. How can he express himself in such a way? But there you are. That's King David for you, written when he was still just a young man. Now, many of you may remember Jeremy's talk about God laying a banquet in the presence of our enemies. And you should look it up, for it was the 10th of November last year. So look it up on the Lifeline Church website. Press play and listen to it all over again. You've got plenty of time in which to revisit some old talks. And Jeremy says, often we think of enemies as soldiers, people with huge spears and stuff. But actually our enemies are lies, fear, anxiety and anger. Jeremy talks about the enemies of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, not as people with lanterns and torches and weapons, but instead as lies and temptations to bottle out of your destiny. And Jeremy goes on to say, it's the enemy, the accuser of the brethren, brethren whispering in our ear, trying to derail our purpose, saying things like, well, did God really speak to you? Things are going to get worse from here, you know. There's no hope for this situation. Remember what happened before? You're a failure. You'll never recover from this. <clears throat> now, fear is a really funny thing. It's multifaceted. So when I grew up, I always had a really vivid imagination, and I think it's both a blessing and a curse, as gifts always are. And the blessing side of it means I can write stories and tell stories. I can create worlds out of nothing. I, you know, it's great to dwell in my head because it's rich and full of some interesting things. But it's also useful in praying because I can imagine the people I'm praying for and I can put Jesus in that situation. But it's also something that can trip me up. So when I was young, it often used to breed fear in me. I, the imagination would just run riot. I watched scary movies with my older brothers because I didn't want to be left out. Now, these movies would probably be laughable now. They were old hammer horror films, you know, with Christopher Lee, Frankenstein, Dracula, whatever. <clears throat> and I was very impressionable at that age, very easily led. And so I'd watch these films with them because I didn't want to be excluded. And then I'd go to bed and not be able to sleep. <laughs> and this would go on. And of course, films got scarier and scarier. And fairly soon I realised, actually, this is a pointless exercise. What's the point of watching something that then makes me unable to sleep? It just didn't make any sense to me. And so I stopped watching films like that, and I still don't. But when I was young, I also grew up in an atmosphere of sort of occasional fear. It wasn't there all the time, but there was an underlying element of anxiety through a lot of my life. I remember a story my mother used to tell about me. Apparently when I was very small in an airport, I said very, very loudly, because I always had a very loud voice, even then, Mommy, I don't want to be skyjacked. This made all the other passengers waiting for the plane look around rather nervously. But hijacking had just been a feature in the daily newspapers, which my parents read avidly every day. And so I was terrified of being skyjacked, as I called it. But being a boy of no small imagination, 
I was terrified of getting rabies as well. I have no idea why, but I was. I was terrified of getting tuberculosis. I mean, for goodness sake, you know, <laughs> TB wasn't particularly prevalent at the time, but there I was. I remember thinking, gosh, there are so many things in this life to be scared of. Ah, you know, I had a vivid imagination, but I had a fear of things that I didn't understand. And I think that's quite often the case. And possibly with this particular case we find ourselves in now, it's the things we don't know. It's the things we don't understand. And I had a fear of people I didn't understand, fear of strangers and a fear of violent crime. And I remember sometimes watching the news and being terrified that they would talk about an incident that was really scary. And in the news, they always used vivid words and that played up to my imagination, which didn't help me one jot. And sometimes the effect of the news was the same as a horror film. Sometimes it still is. And my parents regularly read a particular newspaper when I was older and they encouraged me to read it. So we'll call it the Daily Tabloid, shall we? They read it throughout my childhood. You can imagine the kind of newspaper. They read that paper until, until they died, to be honest. My mum used to read the shocking headlines in hospital to my dad, who was in his 80s and recovering from a series of strokes. And they would both get really anxious and annoyed and angry and together. It didn't do wonders for his blood pressure, that's for sure. He would just get anxious and frustrated with life, the universe and everything because she was reading these alarming headlines and I used to take the paper and try to put it away or throw it away. But she'd bring another copy in the next day and carry on. One terrifying headline after another and the tabloids often use this kind of headline. So I recently did a word search survey of headlines from tabloid newspapers from the last 20 years. To be honest, it's not always tabloids now. Some of the broadsheets are as bad. And it's not always cheap news networks. Sometimes the trusted news networks that we think are unimpeachable, like Sky or Channel 4 or the BBC, also use really alarming words, which makes you think the world is about to end. They love to use words like horror, tragic, fear, panic, surge, Flooding, when they're talking about migrants, not necessarily only water. Sink, betrayal, dead, blast, shock, condemn, evil, revenge, attack, terror, terror, hate, lies, mad. And when I was a kid, I remember watching Panorama. And the music always used to instill in me a sense of doom and gloom, drama and dread, as though the world was about to end with every single crisis that they were reporting on. And of course, it's the same with the current situation with the virus. We have to be very careful where we get our news from and make sure we filter it through the filter of God's word. Now, I have to be honest, I love the news. I used to switch it on when driving in the car, which used to drive my family mad. I would watch the 10 o'clock news whenever I could. I would have my phone notifications blaring out sometimes in the middle of the night, which didn't make Amanda very happy. <laughs> now, recently, I've had to switch it off my phone, take off the notifications and ration how often I look at the news. And I need to watch or read it 
knowing what the sources are and whether the language or the angle is politically motivated, because there's quite a lot of that. In many cases, either on the right or the left, they're as bad as one another. But also looking at the framing of the headlines. What language are they using? What effect is it having on me and on my spirit? Remember, whether we like it or not, fear sells. I recently spoke to Jeremy about this and he had some wisdom on the matter, so I asked him to contribute this. We are consumers by default, um, so God has made us that way. He's made us consumers, both in the natural and in the spiritual. So we, um, we need food to live, to survive, um, and, and also we need to feed our, our spirits. And our spirits are constantly being, being fed as well. And Jesus often talks in food and drink imagery. Um, so in John 6, he says, I am the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven. Um, so he, he refers to himself as bread. Um, he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Um, he says, I will give you living water to the woman at the well. And later on, he says, come to me all who are thirsty. Um, so he, he's always referring to this kind of uh, this imagery of, of food and drink, which is actually there throughout the whole whole Bible, going back into the Old Testament. And often he's quoting those those references. Um, and in our culture, consumerism is often talked about in a negative way. Um, but actually, consumerism is is if you like our, our default setting um, turned to the wrong ends. It's our, our default um, way of being, but but just kind of. Um, in hyperdrive, um, needing to buy more and more stuff to, to feel satisfied. Um, so when it comes to, to consumerism, the question is really, what are we consuming? Um, we're going to be consuming something, um, but, but the question is what? And just like with food, um, where we can be consuming nourishing foods, um, or the fast food full of fat, salt and sugar, which you know gives that short-term fix but ultimately saps our energy and, and leads to poor health um in in the spiritual as well we can we can be doing that and you know we've got to ask what are we feeding our, our spirits on is it on on him on god on on jesus and, and what he gives us his word his promises over our lives or is it on what what the world is giving us because as i've said we're going to be consuming something in it it will either be positive um, so God's promises, his word, the relationships that are going to encourage and, and challenge us, or it's going to be um, some other influence. Um, it could be the wrong media. Um, it could be uh, looking at the wrong kinds of images, or it could be looking for affirmation in the wrong kinds of people. And it's not necessarily about completely shutting out uh, the news. Um, and sh trying to shut out all other media. Maybe, you know, some news sources are you know, probably worth shutting out, but, but certainly not all of them. Um, it's not a case of putting our hands over our ears and you know, never talking to particular people or, or that kind of thing, but it, it, it's about asking what's my dominant source of nourishment. Am I living from that steady flow of nutrients from, from God's words, um, or am I you know, snacking on other things and ultimately leaving myself weak, tired and, and dissatisfied. Um, because if we're living a life of feasting on God, 
on you know his promises his word other stuff can can go in but it's not defining me it's not going to be uh, shaping my reactions to things or, or shaping how I feel um, because I know I'm drinking from a deeper source I'm drinking from a deeper well I'm rooted in him I'm rooted in what he has said um, and is saying and that's that's what's important it, it reminds me of Daniel and Abigail in their recent testimony about about what God did with um, with Miles who was um, born prematurely and um, they they walked a real journey of, of, of trusting trusting in God in, in the midst of that situation and you know often they would receive information or reports from um, from doctors and and it might sound negative um, it might sound like prospects weren't good um, but one of the things that Daniel said was was God gave them the ability to hear with a different ear and I, I really think that was because um, in that season, they were really drawing from God's word over them um, a number of different sources, both from um, from the Bible, from scripture, but also from things people had spoken over them and, and said, hey, I really think this is God's word for you. Um, and because that was their nourishment, that's what they were feeding on. That's what they were hungry for. Um, that was their daily bread. Um, other stuff could be said, but it, it, it wasn't. It wasn't the defining voice. It wasn't the defining thing that was um, affecting um, what they were doing and what they were believing for in each each moment of that journey. Now, fear shows itself in many ways. It may be by being a control freak. Some people pride themselves on being control freaks. They say they're control freaks. They like to control every aspect of their environment. They like to make sure that they set the alarm uh, for the morning. And if the alarm isn't set just right, they make sure they set another alarm just in case the first one doesn't go off. And sometimes they like to control time. They like to control people. They like to control their circumstances. They don't like to trust anyone. They don't delegate. They often think they are managing just fine and often they try to manage other people in exactly the same way. And they think they're being a great manager, but in fact, they're just being fearful. They're showing everyone else how scared they are that their life might spiral outside of their control. So actually, when you say you're a control freak, perhaps you could also call yourself a fear freak because actually there's a sense in which None of us are in control. And I think in this current season, the world is being reminded, listen, mankind, you're not in control. You may think you are, but you really aren't. Mercifully, we do know someone who is. Another way in which fear manifests itself in us is in anger. There's a really good television series that's just come out called The Chosen. And it's a TV series like no other. It's been crowdfunded, which means to say lots of people have contributed toward the costs. And they managed, through crowdfunding on the internet, to raise $10 million to put together the first series. And there are eight episodes made so far and they're raising money for series two. And when you think about raising $10 million, it makes you think, gosh, what could we do with that kind of money? But anyway, basically, it's the story of Jesus 
told through the eyes of many of his followers, Peter, Andrew, Nicodemus, Mary Magdalene, the Apostle Matthew, and it's amazing. It's honestly the best portrayal of Jesus and his environment that I've ever seen. It's also really easy to watch. It's moving, it's humorous, it's engrossing, and they create stories around these characters in which all of Jesus's biblical events take place. And you think, wow, that may be what it was like at the point in time when he met the woman at the well or when he changed the water into wine. The script is brilliant, the acting is excellent. And if you want to know more about it, I'm sure we'll put a link on it at the end of this talk, share it on social media or wherever, because it's a really good way of spending the next however many weeks we have uh, in isolation. And there's one scene in The Chosen where the disciples are walking along with Jesus. And they've only just started to get together. He hasn't officially picked his 12 disciples yet, but they started to call them out of their fishing nets and their tax booths and all the rest. And they're walking along with him and they're moaning about the amount of camping that they've got to do because they are living out in the wild, travelling around. And suddenly they're approached by a man they've never seen before and they stop and go rigid. And they start to shout at the man, get away, get away, we don't want you here. And one of them draws a sword and said, if you don't stay away, so help us, we will run you through. Why do they react to this man in this way? Why are they so angry at him? Because he's a leper. And it's a wonderful moment because Jesus, of course, is not angry at the leper. In fact, he terrifies them even more, the disciples, by saying, guys, put your swords away, leave this to me. And he goes up to the leper and hugs him and heals him. And it's a wonderful moment when you see the disciples who are angry with fear. Suddenly their hearts melt because they see the man completely healed before their eyes. It's incredible. So anger is sometimes a way in which fear shows itself. Now, we're naturally fearful of things like fire, and that's actually a healthy thing. It's a reasonable thing, but out of control, it's not good. Now, Zephan is interesting. Now, I can't go through a talk like this without talking about my grandchildren. It just isn't done. <clears throat> but what's interesting about Zephan is he kind of knows instinctively that fire is dangerous. I don't quite know when he became aware of it. So we went up to Sunderland to see Toby one time last year. And we were having Sunday lunch with some of our friends up there. And to add a bit of atmosphere, they decided to light some candles, which is always nice when you're having a big roast Sunday lunch together. But Zephan, Zephan was not happy. He really didn't like the candles. In fact, he was so distressed that our hosts then had to blow them out. And that was the end of that. No more candles. See, the candles are off, we told him. And he was OK about that. But it's interesting how even as children, we see that fear and reticence can sometimes take hold. Good thing about Zephyr is he now likes candles. In fact, he asks us to draw them all the time. Um, I guess it's a kind of aversion therapy uh, for not aversion therapy, but, you know, for two year olds. Bless him. So candles feature prominently in his life now, but for a season he was not not happy with the fire. 
Now there's another verse which deals with fear, and that is 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. And that reads, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power and a sound mind. And different translations give you different opportunities to look at the verse from different perspectives. Now when Paul is talking about this particular thing, the spirit of fear, he's talking in the context about Timothy being naturally timid. I, I imagine that he was kind of an introverted guy who was kind of thrown into being a leader. But he was clearly anointed by God despite his shortcomings or what he thought were his shortcomings. And I always used to look at the verse and think, well, you know, he's referring to a tendency to be afraid. A tendency. It's a spirit of fear as a tendency to be reticent. Now, let me just throw a different light on this. Now, we all know Bernard Sanders, and he comes along to church and he throws in a hand grenade and goes off, and we all have to work out what the repercussions are of the things he says. <laughs> They're always quite amazing. And we all know Bernard. He's a very exceptional character. What we don't realise, of course, is that Bernard has a secret weapon. And uh, that's his wife, Jenny, who is also full of wisdom and has a lot of anointing herself. It's just that we don't often get to see her. Now, Jenny Sanders has just written a book and it's going to be published on May the 15th. And the book is called Spiritual Feasting. And you can pre-order it on Amazon on all good book suppliers. OK, Spiritual Feasting by Jenny Sanders. You heard it first here. And it's about this very thing. How can God prepare a feasting tables in the presence of our enemies? It just seems so contradictory. But she breaks it down in the context of having a huge meal. So it's entertaining to read, but it's also very poignant and has a lot of things for us to study as well. And she looks at this very verse, 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. So let's just read a bit from her book. Paul identifies fear, not as an abstract feeling, but as a spirit, which doesn't come from God. Its origin is demonic. That's a sobering observation. We live in a world which is increasingly ruled by fears of every variety. Fear for your children, of the future, of financial crash, of climactic disasters, of governmental failures of loneliness, dementia, mental breakdown, ageing. The list is long, depressing and fed by a culture which exploits those fears for its own ends, usually financial. Of course there are legitimate concerns for all of us, but fear is not to be the drumbeat of our life. We were made to walk in step with our Creator, trusting Him with our whole self. Now, that's not the equivalent of carrying a lucky amulet to protect ourselves. You've already read testimonies in this book of a number of God's children who knew disaster all too personally. The point is not that we're immune from it, but that God promises to walk with us faithfully through all of it. He will never abandon us. So we do not need to give way to fear. Have a healthy fear of fire... But don't allow any enemy-induced fears to dictate how you are living. Fight to keep those fears permanently outside your circle of feasting. In the Greek, it describes of one Tim, uh, 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, it describes it as the spirit of dread. 
But also in the Greek, it says that God gives us the spirit of ability, of love and of sanity. A sound mind. So fear can hold us back and lead us to having an unsound mind. Remember that. It is not a good thing. Fear can lead us to very dark places. But is that where God wants us to live? Fear is not our friend. So though we may find ourselves walking through the valley of shadows, we do not need to pitch our tent there. Rather, we must walk through it. Another good bit of the Bible I love is the Passion Translation version of Romans 8. Let's take it from verse 14. The mature children of God are those who are moved by the impulses of the Holy Spirit. And you did not receive the spirit of religious duty, leading you to back into the fear of never being good enough. But you have received the spirit of full acceptance, enfolding you into the family of God. And you will never feel orphaned, for as he rises up within us, our spirits join with him in saying the words of tender affection, Beloved Father. For the Holy Spirit makes God's fatherhood real to us as he whispers into our innermost being, You are God's beloved child. What an amazing passage. Ah! So what's the antidote to fear? It's faith. It's trusting in him. Firstly, repent. Say sorry to God for the times you haven't trusted him, insisting you could cope all by yourself. Thank you very much. But then move on. Repenting isn't necessarily about wailing and gnashing of teeth. In fact, it's actually quite simple. It's about agreeing to do things differently and moving on. Another way is through hearing the word of God. What effect does that have? Well, whether it's from the Bible or from friends or listening to a talk or singing a song or in a dream or whenever, whatever way God speaks to you, look back on the things that God has said to you in the past. Do you remember what Daniel and Abigail spoke about? They had heard the word of God clearly. So despite the doctor's warnings and all the pronouncements they made about Miles, his life and future, they had learned to hear with a different ear. So once you have heard and received God's word, it makes all the difference. Fear becomes almost irrelevant. Dwell on the things that he said to you now. And remember Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So dwelling on the things that God has said to you and said to the church is very important. And I'll just finish with this maxim. Regret looks back. Fear looks around. Worry looks in. Faith looks up.